Poso, and welcome to the first episode of the Menominee Food Sovereignty Podcast. My name is Jess, and I'm an AmeriCorps volunteer serving at the College of Menominee Nation. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing people who are involved in food sovereignty on the Menominee Reservation in one way or another. For this first episode, I decided to interview Dr. Overstreet, an anthropologist who's done research on ancient Menominee garden beds. I first heard about his research during my interview for my job here with AmeriCorps, and I was fascinated by what he and his colleagues discovered. I got to meet Dr. Overstreet over Zoom, and he told me all about his discoveries and why they changed the narrative about who the Menominee people were pre-colonization. All right, I'll let him introduce himself. Uh, Good afternoon, Jessica. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Um, Actually, I... I've spent a lot of time on the Menominee Reservation over the years. Um, I taught in the University of Wisconsin system for a number of years. I was uh, tenured at the UW-Waukesha campus. I left uh, teaching for a while and established a consulting firm. I did that for about 15 or 18 years, and then I went back into academia, and, and I was the director of the Archaeological Research Center at Marquette University, retired and I guess I just wanted something else to do and I was interested and I was asked by Chad Waukesha to teach at the college to, to do some work on a course called the pre-contact history of the of the Menominee Nation and it was actually through the the College of Menominee Nation and this course that uh, I became a little bit more interested in the archaeology on the reservation and there hadn't been any work done there since uh, uh, shortly after the turn of the century. The Milwaukee Public Museum and the uh, Museum of the American Indian, the Hay Foundation in New York, collaborated on <clears throat> some short-term research in, in 1919 and again in 1921. And that was pretty much what was known about uh, Menominee prehistory. So we've revisited a number of sites that had been identified by, by, by Barrett and Skinner, the two authors uh, from Milwaukee Public Museum and from uh, the Hay Foundation. And they turned out to be very much different than we thought. And just to, to show you how sometimes research has this real element of serendipity. I'd like to take credit for some of these discoveries, but it was actually Menominee foresters who discovered the, the site that changed everything. It was Ron Waka and, and Jeff Greeno and others were looking at a, a site where some logging was going on and they contacted the, the tribe's historic preservation officer and said, there's something really unusual out here. We'd like you to come out and take a look at it. And so Dave Greeno contacted me. We went out to this site. This would have been roughly in the mid nineties, uh, about 1995 or so. And I was like a kid in a candy store. The forest floor was, was dimpled with storage pits. These depressions that were, there were hundreds of them. There were mounds of course and artifacts, but what was so unusual was that we encountered a, a small patch of raised agricultural fields that are known as garden beds. Now, in the ethnographic record, in the historical records, in the archaeological record, the Menominee and their ancestors have always been characterized as hunters and gatherers, harvesters of natural resources. They're the people of the wild rice. So here was this element of, of gardening or agriculture of some sort that was very new and unusual. 
we met on site at the what's known now as the Joe Dick Road site with members of the uh, Language and Culture Commission and asked them, what is it that you would like to know about this site? And they said, well, we'd like to know what's being stored in, in those pits. And we'd like to know what's being grown in those, in those gardens that you're talking about. But we don't want you to mess around with the mounds and whatever. Um, the work that had been done at the turn of the century focused pretty much on the excavation of human remains. The tribe in its own cultural uh, leanings felt this was, was certainly a, at best a sacrilege and, and was something not to be condoned. And, and that's, a, that's a chapter of American archaeology that goes back to the whole mound builder controversy. But so we did some very small scale excavations. And again, it was, it was just plain blind dumb luck, Jessica. We, <laughs> we put in a small trench in the garden beds and we collected samples. They identified corn uh, pollen, maize pollen. And we did some work in the, in the garden and in the storage pits. We just excavated a couple of them in one two meter square. And it was a mix of cultural materials that spanned, oh my goodness, several hundred years. So Joe Dick Road kind of put us on a, a new direction. We actually got some volunteers to registered surveyors to do a map of the site back in uh, 1995 or so. And they identified over 300 of these surface depressions where you could actually see their origins on the surface. They occur as a kind of an elevated circular ring and then a depression in the middle. And we assumed that most of them were used for storage of produce or other materials. Since these were so evident on the surface, why didn't anyone excavate them before you? Well, because nobody had really been there since 1917 or 19, 1921 okay. was the last work that was done. And the focus was exclusively on the mounds. They never mentioned in their 1932 publication much of anything about the size of the communities, where they were located. The emphases were all placed on, on the mounds and what they could learn from mound excavation. We didn't expect to find what we found. Dave Greeno had put us on a, a project, a long-term project with students from the college to go out and revisit many of these sites. Some of them, it took us two to three years to relocate them. Mm. Walking around in the forest, uh, with maps of relatively poor quality done in 1919, kind of sketch maps in thick underbrush is, you know, I know that at, at a site, for example, off of South Branch Road called Nakuti's Berry Patch, that Dave Greeno and I walked over that site twice and never recognized the mounds, even mm -hmm. though we were probably 25 to 30 feet away from them. Okay, so, so even though they are right on the surface, you kind of have to know what you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. They're, I mean, in, in some areas with where you have mature white pines, like the, the Five Islands Mounds and Village site, it's much more open and, and you have a better sense of visibility. But a long story short, we went from Joe Dick Road to looking at several other sites. And we now know that there were at least eight to 10 major village sites right along the Wolf River and its tributaries, as well as the south branch of the Oconto River. They, they share certain characteristics. They all have mound groups associated with them. They all have raised agricultural fields. They all have storage pits. Our excavation has been very limited, but I can tell you that, you know, fast forward to 2020, 
what we now understand based on the radiocarbon chronologies that we've been able to secure and a larger sample of artifacts that the Menominee's ancestors were the original organic <laughs> agriculturalists. Mm -hmm. And what is so cool about this whole phenomenon is number one, it was unrecognized. In fact, if you, if you go through the historical documents, the federal administrators on the Menominee Reservation after the Treaty of 1854, when it was established, there's nothing but disparaging remarks about how poor Menominee soils are for agriculture hmm. and how incapable the Menominee were of, quote, unquote, learning the attributes of civilization to farm in the European way. As it turns out, there was only one Western anthropologist who took any interest in Menominee agriculture at all, Felix Kiesing. He was from New Zealand, and he started out studying indigenous cultures in the Pacific. When he visited the Menominee Reservation in 1939, he recorded the agriculture that was going on there at the time, but he didn't know about the ancient garden beds that would later be discovered. When, uh, when Felix Kiesing came to visit the Menominee Reservation, in uh, 1939, he had a number of, of tribal uh, elders who were his informants, who would actually take him around in their cars. And Felix Kiesing made all of these maps about where the Thunders lived, where the Bear people lived, which communities had been abandoned. But he also mapped farms. The farms, by his criterion, were any area that cultivated more than three acres. That was a farm. And he also mapped gardens. Any garden that was less than three acres, that was a garden. And there, the, the whole res is just, the map is, is remarkable. He, he published his, his work, um, I think in, in uh, the original publication was in Pennsylvania, but it was reprinted by the... Um, University of Wisconsin Press in 1987. And it, it, he was really interested in cultural change and how much the Menominee had, how they had adapted to reservation life since 1854 and their traditional life was. That was the, the goal of his study. But he was a wonderful scholar. And there are stacks and stacks of his handwritten notes and maps on file at the uh, Menominee Cultural Museum, all of his notes, uh, who his informants were, what they were telling him, where these places were. So he was one of the earlier Western anthropologists to sort of record the fact that these yes. gardens existed? Yeah, and he's the only one that, that we can, so far as we know, that actually made the effort to identify that, that Menominee people even, and, and some of that I suppose you might assign to uh, post-depression era that people were growing food because they had to. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, because they didn't have jobs. They didn't have money to, to travel to Shawano or Anago to secure groceries. So uh, that might have been part of it. But they were still using raised fields even back in the 1930s. Today, we have grand evidence that the Menominee's ancestors developed a very sophisticated form of, actually, it shouldn't, probably be called just agriculture. It is agriculture inside of, of a forested setting, which is mm -hmm. relatively rare. It's also something that is distributed relatively north of where we typically tend to encounter agricultural sites. So not only did they modify what 
are by any stretch of the imagination poor quality soils for agriculture. They improve them by soil amendments and the structure of these ridge fields and uh, they, they trap from the forest litter, they trap their own mulch that gets decomposed in the leaves, they manage moisture. These, these, these guys were so sophisticated. And we got our radiocarbon dates from the, the Big Eddy West site. We realized that these people had made it right through the, the climate change of Little Ice Age and were still growing raised fields on the reservation just about the time the French arrived. The Little Ice Age was a period of natural climate change from about the year 1300 to 1850 that affected Europe and North America. During this period, winters were colder and longer, reducing the growing season. Despite these climatic changes, the ancient Menominee continued farming successfully. Our radiocarbon dates are about 1650 or so. For, okay. So we have radiocarbon ranges from about 800 AD to 1650 AD. And then historical documentation by photographs that here is this this progression from about 800 AD to contemporary times, this stuff has been going on. Yeah, that's incredible. It, it certainly is. And I suspect that there are many Menominee people who are still gardening, elders who are very knowledgeable about ways of doing things. We mm -hmm. would just like to see this practice spread and have an impact on food sovereignty. We've literally got good evidence that this sustainable lifeway persists for a thousand years. This is organic gardening at its very best. And it, it really shouldn't be too surprising if you consider that by trial and error, these very clever agronomists evolved this system over a millennium. Mm -hmm. They kept getting better and smarter and better and smarter and better and smarter so that by the time... Uh, we get around to 1920 or so, people are still doing this. They're, they're growing their own produce. There's these, these, these great pictures of, of uh, a Menominee farmer who's got this huge hoard of, of beans that's covered with carp. <laughs> that's how he's storing them. So people were doing that. I would say that it's, it's pretty remarkable that we've got the earliest radiocarbon-dated raised fields in the mid-continent on the Menominee Reservation. Mm -hmm. That in and of itself has turned some heads. We've also got new analyses from cooperating with the Smithsonian Institution Tropical Plant Laboratory and a group from Iowa called the Midwest Ethnohorticulture. And they have analyzed soil samples from the uh, garden beds, the prehistoric garden beds that we've, we've, where we've done excavations and using plant phytoliths, which are these long surviving little structures that can identify plants. Uh, they've documented mazes growing in these gardens, sunflowers, squash residue, they were growing squash, and probably beans, but we don't, we don't have good archeological evidence. Beans are very difficult to demonstrate from archeological sediments unless they're actually carbonized plant specimens. But we do have some isotope data that we're in the process of, of finalizing that's very strongly suggestive that beans were a part of this, mm -hmm. this agricultural complex as well. One of the things, and one of the people we're working with, Jennifer Picard at, at UWM, who is a, a botanical specialist, we, we send her a ton of soil 
she floats it in, in a device. The carbonized plant remains come to the top. She skims them off, dries them in muslin, and then identifies what's there. You know, carbonized plant parts, blah, blah, blah. You get a spectrum of what's out there. Wendy Scullin from Midwest Ethno-Horticulture in collecting the phytoliths said, gee, there's no trees here. These are all highland grasses, but there's also wetland grasses. How did wetland grasses get on these sites? We looked at our stratigraphy at the Joe Dick Road site. People were actually going down into the creek bottoms, collecting muck soils that had a lot of organic material, plastering their planting surfaces with new organic stuff because it nourished their crops. Uh-huh. Here comes Overstreet and his gang of thugs. You know, a thousand years later, we collect a pile of dirt, we send it off, and, and the Smithsonian Institution says, how come there's all these aquatic seeds? Were they growing wild rice on these ridges? I said, no. Wild rice is an aquatic emergent. It grows in standing water. These are upland sites. But now we understand where these wetland seeds are coming from. They're coming in with the soils that they're bringing up and, and enriching their gardens. Jeff Greeno has a very interesting viewpoint, perspective on these gardens. You got to leave a few trees. Why do you leave a few trees? Well, you got to manage sunlight and shade, but you leave a few trees because they're water maintenance systems. They keep the soil moist. And so what what trees do you want to keep? Well, you certainly want to keep the ones that develop mast crops. In case you're confused like I was, mast crops are the fruits and nuts that can be harvested from trees. What's the ancestral bear at the Menominee uh, Museum carved from? It's a large butternut tree that was probably three or 400 years old. Butternuts show up in the archaeological sites and the carbonized plant remains so they're collecting mass crops. Were they maintaining, were they selecting particular kind of trees to keep? Now that we know where the, where the garden sites are and the village sites are, now we've got to look at the historical records of the land survey notes to look at the species of the witness trees that the foresters identified in the mid-19th century mm-hmm. that will tell us about that. I've been using the provisional term agroforestry to differentiate what the Menominee's ancestors were doing um, a millennia ago. So all of these behaviors, we're starting to get a little bit better understanding. Of. Mm-hmm. And I think agroforestry is, is really part of the solution. And I think it, it speaks to the hundreds of years that the tribe has demonstrated it manages the forest to maintain it, to sustain it. For the long term, yeah. That's right. And that's that's what supposedly Chief Oshkosh said a long time ago. You start at one end of the reservation and go towards the setting sun. And when you you take a couple of trees here and a sick one there and whatever, and then you come back and you start all over again and you'll always have those trees. And, and he was right. And he's been proven right. And they're still doing it. They're world famous. I, I'd like to point out that while I might sound smug and knowledgeable, I have to tell you, we're very low on the learning curve. We are pulling together a group of researchers that will help us build this multidisciplinary model. Number one, how these garden beds are developed, how they evolved, and the fact that people were still using them on the Menominee Reservation in the 1920s. The thing that's so interesting about this is that these early... um anthropologists, I guess, either missed it or they they weren't interested in the agriculture. 
And then it's it's led to this conception that people have today that Native Americans didn't do agriculture. I mean, I think there's a lot of people out there who would believe that, who would say all Native Americans were just hunter-gatherers. And that's totally untrue. Well, you're absolutely right. And I think Native American agriculture has always been disparaged. And and I think there are reasons for that. Uh, number one, if you make the argument, if you're a, if you're a, a mid-19th central century colonialist and you're looking for land, one of the ways to get that land is you claim it's not improved. Oh, these guys don't know how to farm, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so, and if you actually go through the documented evidence, the the quotes from some of the agents on the reservation are incredibly say, well, there's nothing fit to be grown here at all. Uh, these, these people have to rely on the chase. And, and, and here we've got this incredibly long history of sustainable life ways that they, mm-hmm. they were able to live within their ecosystem for a thousand years. And uh, that's certainly an accomplishment that, that any human group ought to be immensely proud of. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So you think maybe ignoring this land use was almost a way, almost an excuse for taking over the land. Yeah, I I think there were some political and economic ramifications. Um, We know that that oftentimes the the loss of of, uh, indigenous people's territories uh, relates to political and economic concerns. If you can justify that, I think it makes it easier to accomplish your your objective of acquiring those lands. So you mentioned a little bit what you're planning in the future. Can you elaborate on that more? I'm planning to continue to do archaeology in the Menominee Reservation until I'm 174 <laughs> years old. Actually, I I see my role as a as an enabler and a facilitator. Um, one of the reasons I took the job at College of the Menominee Nation had to do with social justice issues. I had retired from Marquette University and in talking with the tribal historic preservation officer and some of the land use managers, it was really interesting that legislation that was passed, the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, provided that nobody could work within the boundaries of any federal tract of land or within the interior boundaries of any Indian reservation without securing a permit from the overseeing federal agencies. To get that permit, you had to demonstrate that you met the uh, Department of the Interior standards to do archaeology on federal lands or within the boundaries of an Indian reservation. The requirement was minimally a degree of anthropology, archaeology, or a related discipline. Most tribes simply were disenfranchised. They didn't have tribal members who met those qualifications, and so they had to rely on federal agencies. And in a sense, what the federal agencies were saying to the indigenous populations was that you're not qualified to manage your own cultural resources. So they're telling them, actually, you can't excavate your own historical sites. Well, not only that, you can't have a voice in developing management plans. And then things started to shift maybe 15, 20 years ago as more and more tribal historic preservation officers went through either park service training or other training and and acquired the skills to manage those resources. Uh They started to push back. And one of the things that they did, and, and I have to confess, I certainly was very much guilty of this, I didn't understand the ways in which the native people perceived these sites. 
I mean, I was I was trained in a in a Western academic background in archaeology and anthropology, and I had my own research interests at, at the forefront. And I wasn't terribly concerned about spiritual access. We've come to realize that these sites mean much more to the indigenous people whose ancestors are responsible for them. My goal in 2006 or so, I guess it was, was to kind of hang on until there was a tribal member who met the Department of the Interior Standards. And a young woman, Moni Warrington, who was a student at College of Menominee Nation, but who actually began working with us when she was a high school student, mm-hmm. is now finishing her master's degree at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She's an enrolled tribal member. She plans to stay on the reservation and voila, my my job is complete. There's, <laughs> I can now retire and, and focus on on my own stuff. But and, and there's others. We we've, we've always really made a, a strong effort with a lot of help from the Menominee Indian Tribal High School and and through culture camp and through uh, community services to involve middle school students and high school students and college interns in acquiring the skills and the practices to manage those resources. And uh, they are doing a splendid job. There are several other students that are at various universities following uh, pathways and not all of them in anthropology. Some want to be in archaeology. Some want to be in museum studies. Some want to be in agriculture. I think it's great that the, the College of Menominee Nation is now implementing an agricultural program. They're going to start training people in agriculture. I mean, that's, that's phenomenal locally. And so if they're going to do it locally, that means they've got to deal with local conditions. And they're going to learn, just like their ancestors did, what works best and what doesn't work so well. I don't think that even the tribal members realize what a unique resource they have because of the way they have always had this key value of sustainable life and the way they've managed the forest, they've protected this landscape that you can walk across and locate where the communities were, what their size was. The core of the way the tribe has managed that forested landscape over so many years is part and parcel of that core value. You maintain that that resource, and uh, there's no reason why they can't do the same thing with with food sovereignty improvement. The other thing is their indigenous people have already established some really great models. I think what the Oneida are doing is, yeah. is wonderful. Um, yeah. I think the Ho-Chunk are, are doing some of the same kind of things. Um, the Menominee case, of course, is very different because they, they managed such a large tract of land. As Larry Walkout told me not too many years ago, maybe we used to grow corn, but now we grow trees. Menominee Tribal Enterprises manages 230,000 acres of forested land on the reservation, and the Menominee have been sustainably harvesting timber since the reservation was established in 1854. The MTE website says that their sustainable practices allow the forest to replenish itself naturally. In fact, if you look at a satellite image of the Menominee Reservation, you can clearly see its border because of the stark difference in forest cover between the reservation and the surrounding towns. I recommend you check it out on Google Maps. We're focusing on, on non-invasive ways of, of learning more about these sites. We do very little excavation. We do only what we need to do to get key answers to specific problems mm-hmm. that the tribe wants us to pursue. What do you want to know? What, what are you interested in? Mainly, 
we're interested in preserving these sites for another couple of centuries and people in the future are going to have much better tools and probably better brain boxes than we do right now. Um, and there ought to be something left. The loss of archaeological sites to modern agriculture with deep plowing and chisel plowing and paving and grading and, and growth. There aren't any places like this in Wisconsin. It is a unique setting within the state that is just an incredible asset to understanding prehistory. So we have a lot to learn. Fortunately, because of that core value of sustainable lifeways, those sites are going to be there uh, mm -hmm. to continue to inform us about past lifeways uh, for centuries to come. Now, one of the one of the questions you asked me about was what's what's the impact? Where you know where do we kind of go from this, and and how does it fit into the whole notion of food sovereignty? And I can only tell you that that a number of years ago, I think it's five or six years ago now, community members gave us a, a great deal of help. We wanted to to try and develop like a demonstration garden, but also a, a kind of a research point, and we had con considered doing that at the locality where Sustainable Development Institute is now located in their garden. Mm -hmm. But that area had been cultivated for 150 years, and who knows the history of herbicides and pesticides and whatever right. else has gone on there. Um, the seed stock, the European pasture weeds that are in the agricultural. So all that stuff argued that this is not a place to do that. So we wanted to know where could we find a place that community members as well as outsiders could visit and get an appreciation of, of what these raised gardens might have looked like uh, 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. So we talked, a, we talked a number of community members into helping us out using digging sticks and bison scapula hose, and we, we cut the trees down at this is right across from the Cultural Museum. And we developed a small garden plot. And before we did that, we recorded the soils configuration. And then we ridged up our fields. And we, Jeff Greeno has helped us burn it pretty much every year on a controlled burn, which is part of the, the agro uh, system. And it's amazing what, what we've seen. Insect predation is very, very minor. I remember trying to garden in my own yard and <laughs> losing all of the squash to the squash beetles and the, uh -huh. all the rest of these critters. I think the burning is part of the equation that helps to control insect predation. We also found that, that the soil seemed to continually improve as we go on uh -huh. because the ditches uh, collect this organic material and it it gets mixed in with the snow settles in it and it melts there in the spring rains and it rots up and it makes wonderful organic material for the gardens. So when you hoe up the planting surfaces and plant them, it also helps germination rates. That's so cool how looking at it holistically, you don't, you don't just have to apply a pesticide. You can do something else that will actually prevent the pests in the first place. We use absolutely no fertilizers. I know at SDI they use fish emulsion. Yeah. Uh, we haven't even used that up to this year. The only thing we have used is the innards from some of the sturgeon, uh, from the sturgeon feast that we bury them in the garden and they break down. What the impact is, potential impact is, because people would have to, to mimic this, this gardening system, 
is that when these agricultural fields are abandoned by the Menominee's ancestors, they were much more fertile than when they arrived. Contemporary agriculture could really, could really <laughs> use this as, as an aspect to consider for the future because with the mechanized corporate kind of agriculture that goes on, there are many areas that by the time agriculture is done, the soils are depleted. They're not much good. So when do you think this practice sort of disappeared? Or are there people still doing it? Oh, there, there are people out there that are still hoeing up uh, uh, these, these raised fields of some degree. Um, I, I can't tell you, uh, I don't even know how many people are, are still keeping large gardens. Not as many as we would like, obviously. Um, I think that's part of the, the development of the farmer's market. It's part of the work of, of, uh, of Jennifer Galthier and Extension and, and uh, uh, the community, community education projects to provide seeds and garden boxes. I think it's slowly gaining uh, some momentum. So we thought if we could get local people interested in doing small raised gardens uh, and their own homesteads, that it would really have a tremendous impact on food sovereignty. Um, I don't want to belabor the fact that people much more knowledgeable than, than I am have identified the Menominee Reservation as a, as a, a food desert, I guess, that it's so, so limited. Uh, there are health issues from uh, nutrition, fresh produce, is expensive stuff. It's healthy stuff, but you got to drive in your car <laughs> to go pick it up. Then you got to bring it home and you got to process it. I think that we've got some leverage for working with, with young people and these ancient gardens and contemporary health issues and pulling this stuff all together. I think it's going to have a lasting impact on food sovereignty but it, because it's part of this long-standing issue of sustainable life ways, that it's going to be accepted. It's a hard thing to get started, but once you get started and get some results, um, I think there are positive, uh, positive things going on there. Mm-hmm. So, so to my final question of what food sovereignty looks like to you, would you say that it's sort of a return to these traditional methods? I would say it is most absolutely a return, not only to the, uh, the traditional methods of cultivation, but also um, trying to revitalize some of the seed stock that's still out there in various places of plants that are adapted to the, to the soils. Interestingly enough, um, corn is a, or maize is a, is a very uh, adaptable plant. And we collect seed from our garden and at the museum and we replant. We're trying to keep mm-hmm. these, these plants growing. And I think that's part of, of Jennifer's uh, approach to getting seeds out, uh, heirloom type seeds that will do well here. And the more they're planted, the better off they are developing resistance to blights and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I, I can't tell you, I'm not a gardener. Uh, I can't grow much of anything but I really take great pride when the pumpkins climb over the fence and the squash weigh 20 pounds a piece. And sure, most of our corn we feed to the deer because they get into the garden and break <laughs> it down. Uh, we're, not, we're not so concerned about feeding people, 
but we are concerned about keeping the seed stock moving and, and replanting from our own sources every year so that the plants themselves will, will evolve. I'm not going to live long enough to see any significant changes in, in results, but every year that you do that, um, you are, you are having an impact on food sovereignty, I think. Yeah. Are you adapting a strain of corn to this region or is that a strain that grew in this region? Well, it's interesting. There is one strain of corn that we know was being grown by a number of families uh, on family farms on the reservation into the 1950s. I have not been able to get it to germinate. Oh, okay. It was kept in a glass jar. But there are others out there who still may have uh, some of this original seed stock. Uh, there's also a wonderful publication uh, from the Milwaukee Public Museum on here on Smith's Ethnobotany that has images of the kind of squash Menominee women were growing at the mm. turn of the century and some of the other plants that are, are being used. There's also archives all over the country of these heirloom seeds, but it takes a lot of time to search them out. Mm -hmm. the, the maize that we use was actually... Uh, secured for us through SDI, uh, it's Bear Island Flint corn, it's a northern flint. And again, it's interesting how adaptable it is um, and, and how it survives. It, uh, we don't nourish it, we, we don't give it any <laughs> chemicals to, to grow it, uh, but we, we do water when we have to. I now let the students that tend the gardens use metal tools. Originally, the first three or four years, we did not allow them to do anything but use bison scapula or elk mm -hmm. scapula hose because we wanted to, to stay honest to the traditional methods. What's going on here on the Menominee Reservation isn't unique, by the way. It's going on all over the country. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are Native uh, American agronomists that are, are pushing these things. There are lots of, of, of efforts to, to get to food sovereignty. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's why it's so important to, first of all, research these methods and then also distribute knowledge about them because we are sort of facing up against a potential agricultural crisis, like you talked about, where we're depleting our soils and we don't have a lot of genetic diversity in the crops we grow. So we might need to learn from these previous methods. This whole notion of, of you know, the, the way corn has been so genetically manipulated to produce one ear of corn at a certain level so it can be mechanized harvesting and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but and, and so what, is that, what does that do to the nutritional value? I, whether we'll realize that or not, I don't know, but I think it's important, uh, again, to, to strive for food mm -hmm. sovereignty for everyone's benefit. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's a great movement happening right now. And when I started thinking about who to interview for this, you know, I immediately came up with like eight different people who are involved in food sovereignty in one way or another. This community is coming together. And, and mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people pulling for food sovereignty from a variety of different directions. Yeah, I think so too. Big aspect is education. We got to get the information out to the community. Mm -hmm get them involved, get them excited about it. And I think that's happening. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the Menominee Food Sovereignty Podcast. 
In the next episode, I'll be interviewing Cherie Thunder, who is the food sovereignty director at a local nonprofit called Many Conicum. The music in this episode is Journey of the Heart by Wade Fernandez. You can buy his music at wadefernandezmusic.com. <laughs>